Take your copy of God's Word, turn to Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9, starting in verse 8, I would remind you this is the Lord speaking to you. The Lord has sent a word against Jacob, and it will fall on Israel. And all the people will know, Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria, who say in pride and in arrogance of heart, well, the bricks have fallen, but we will build with dressed stones. The sycamores have been cut down, but we will put cedars in their place. But the Lord raises the adversaries of Razin against him, stirs up his enemies. The Syrians on the east, the Philistines on the west, devour Israel with open mouth. For all this, his anger is not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. The people do not turn to him who struck them, nor inquire of the Lord of hosts. So the Lord cut off from Israel head and tail palm branch and reed in one day. The elder and honored man is the head, the prophet who teaches lies is the tale. For those who guide this people have been leading them astray. And those who are guided by them are swallowed up. Therefore, the Lord does not rejoice over their young men and has no compassion on their fatherless and widows For everyone is godless and an evildoer, and every mouth speaks folly. For all this, his anger is not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. For wickedness burns like a fire, it consumes briars and thorns, it kindles the thickets of the forest, and They roll upward in a column of smoke. Through the wrath of the Lord of hosts, the land is scorched. The people are like fuel for the fire. No one spares another. They slice meat on the right, but they're still hungry. They devour on the left, but they're not satisfied. Each devours the flesh of his own arm. Manasseh devours Ephraim, and Ephraim devours Manasseh. Together they are against Judah. For all this, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. Woe to those who decree iniquitous decrees, and the writers who keep writing oppression to turn aside the needy from justice and to rob the poor of my people of their right. Widows may be their spoil, that they may make the fatherless their prey. What will you do on the day of punishment and the ruin that will come from afar? To whom will you flee for help? And where will you leave your wealth? Nothing remains but to crouch among the prisoners or to fall among the slain. For all this his anger has not turned away. And his hand is stretched out still. Let's pray. 
Well, Father, you have spoken to us in your word, and it's a hard word. So we ask that you would give us understanding and belief. We pray for Christ's sake. Amen. Every once in a while, you engage a product that uh, when you, you, you see it, you instantly kind of know what it is and how well it's done, how cleverly it's been thought out, and you just have to think, well, that, the design of this is perfect. As many of you know, I am a bit of a, a book nerd. If you've ever been in my study, there's barely room to sit, much less to work, because the books are everywhere. I remember a number of years ago, though, when I encountered one of those sets of books when you think, man, somebody got this one right. Edward Gibbon, some of you might know that name, probably not, The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. It's a seven-volume series. It's one of the kind of great academic works kind of explaining how Rome went from being the best to being not. Uh, It's been published a number of times and uh, isn't really that important, honestly, except for the version from Easton Press, which is absolutely beautiful. It comes in a set of seven volumes, all kind of laid out perfectly, and at the top it says Gibbons, uh, the decline and fall of the Roman Empire, but in the middle of the spine, there's a beautiful Roman column that each book gets slightly more decrepit. So in the first volume, it looks perfect as he describes kind of the starting point of Rome, this great empire that's brilliant and powerful and beautiful and wonderful, and the, the column is just majestic. It's got its top little, uh, you know, part that's at the capital. The top's beautiful with all the column lines down. And, but then on the next one, the cracks begin to show. And by the third volume, part of the capital's fallen off and uh, fallen down, and by the time you get to the fifth or the sixth one, even the whole top of it's done, and by the time you get to the seventh volume, there's only about two-thirds of the column even standing. So even as you look at the back of the books, you've captured exactly what Gibbon is doing. A nation that's being destroyed, a nation that's falling apart, it's one of the great works, interestingly, into what nations look like when they are destroyed. Now, he gets many things right. What happens? Well, the barbarians destroyed Rome, internal decline destroyed Rome, a loss of civic virtue destroyed Rome. Interestingly, one of the ones that he says, Christianity destroyed Rome, and he's probably not entirely wrong on that one. Why does that matter for a moment like this? Is because really the end of chapter 9 in Isaiah is a condensed version of Gibbon's seven volumes of the decline and fall of the Roman Empire. Here, not Rome as much, as this is what the decline and fall of Israel looks like. A nation that has really crumbled, is crumbling, will crumble, and fall apart on itself which is really a kind of shocking and staggering contrast to where chapter 9 begins. We've been working through the book of Isaiah. We've gotten through all of the introductory material. In chapters 1 through 5, we've started getting into the interesting and good parts. Chapter 6, Isaiah meets the Lord and gets his calling. It's a terrible pastoral calling that nobody wants. And then 7 and 8, we get to see these promises regarding uh, the Lord defending his people, but they just continue to be a mess until chapter 9 begins with what we think is one of the most beautiful parts in the entirety of the Old Testament. 
this glorious prophecy of the Lord Christ and what His rule and reign will be. It's one of these passages that's hard to read correctly even because we all hear it in song. It's been sung so many times. For to us a child is born, a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God, you hear it in your head, don't you? Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. These wonderful promises that we have, these wonderful promises of the governance of Christ. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is the one who will rule over David's kingdom forever. And this section ends with this wonderful statement, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. God Himself is the one that will accomplish this reign of the Messiah, of the Lord Christ. Yay! This is, one, this is it, right? This is it. We've got it. It's happened. It's, it's here. It's coming to its final and glorious consummation. Only between verses 7 and where we take up in verse 8, there's a huge gap. (laughs) We jump really in verse 7 from the future. In fact, actually, we now know from New Testament perspective kind of two days in the future, the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. And we jump back in time, roughly 700 years to verse 8. The promise as to really what's going to happen to Israel. Is it going to be that the Messiah comes and establishes His kingdom, or is something going to take place between the time of Isaiah and the time of the coming Messiah? What what does the in-between period look like? And really what Isaiah does, the Lord does here in uh, chapter 9 and the first part of chapter 10 is explains why they need a new king. He explains why they need a new governance. He explains why they need a Messiah at all. Why they need anything. The decline and fall of Israel as an empire. And we see it really in these four parts with this refrain that kind of haunts us, don't we? It's the end of verse 12, the end of verse 17, the end of verse 21, the end of verse 4. For all this, God's anger had not turned away, and His hand is stretched out still. You see, Gibbon missed a little bit. He said Rome fell ultimately because it was a nation that uh, kind of imploded, lost cohesion, lost its kind of moral fiber, and lost its kind of unifying principles. Interestingly, Isaiah is going to take a bigger thing in saying really what happens uh, to a nation, this nation, Israel, that falls is a nation that has really cultivated the wrath of God. They've cultivated his displeasure. They've cultivated his judgment. They've cultivated the destruction that comes from an angry God. 
And while we're not Israel, removed several thousand years from this text, certainly we can look at what they did, what uh, habits they cultivated, what heart conditions they nurtured that displeased the Lord. That's kind of generally a good rule of thumb when you read the Old Testament. Whatever features made God really angry, those would be things that we should repent for and confess in our lives. Just look at these four stanzas just quickly and consider, really, what, what, what was happening in the hearts of these people? Now, I'm going to be up front. These verses are hard, right? This is not the easy section of the Scripture. You don't read this one on your surface kind of reading and go, oh, these are the verses I'm probably going to memorize for my devotions this week. This is hard labor right here. So we're going to put it to it. Verse 8, the Lord sends a word against Jacob and falls on Israel. Here's the prophecy, this uh, impending destruction that's going to come, and all people will know it. Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria, this is notifying that it's the nation in the north. This is Israel that's going to be able to experience this, not Jerusalem and Judah. Their downfall is going to happen 140 years later or so. Instead, we see verse 10, the beginning explanation of what's happening in Israel that's making God so angry. And it's a very clear passage for them, and one of those that we read and are like, yeah, I don't get it, Michael. It's confusing. The bricks have fallen, but we will build with dressed stone. The sycamores have been cut down, but we will put cedars in their place. But the Lord raises the adversaries of Razin against him and stirs up his enemies. Syrians on the east, Philistines on the west, devour Israel with an open mouth. Ah. You have to remind a couple of chapters and remind ourselves of what's happening historically. At this point, Israel is in a kind of, hmm, they're in serious jeopardy. Their two uh, nearest neighbors to the north have formed an alliance and are getting ready to invade them and kind of wipe them off the map. They're trying to figure out how to get out of this trouble and are figuring out, should we negotiate with our other enemies against these enemies or not? And God has already told them, don't do anything at all. These two bozos are going to join together, and then I'm going to wipe them off the map from another uh, enemy altogether, right? Let's see if we get it backwards. This enemy is going to come and wipe off these two enemies off the face of the map. You're not going to have to worry about any of it. But instead, God's people here, rather than trusting the Lord, uh, even with my favorite command that God ever gives, which is just don't do anything at all. That's my favorite command. Just don't do anything. They can't do that. They can't do nothing. And so they begin to panic. And instead, verse 10, we see their response to the coming threat. God has said, do nothing, be patient, trust me, rest in me, find your hope in me, and I will protect you. And what are they saying? No! Instead, what we're going to do is we're going to be preoccupied with picking up the pieces of the mess. You know what? When they come in, these invading armies come in and they knock over our walls, we're just going to go ahead and get excited about fixing it. And instead of just building it with bricks, what we're going to do is we're actually going to dress the stones. We're going to cut them. And instead of it just being kind of a stacked stone wall or bricks baked with clay, we're going to build it with dressed, cut, beautiful, pristine stones. So rather than a a brick house, this would be like a marble carved house. 
You know what? When they come in and they burn down everything and they cut down our sycamore trees, which are ugly and awful, you know what we'll do is we're going to plant back. We're not even going to plant sycamore trees. We're going to rebuild better. We're going to end better than where we started. We will rebuild better than their destruction. We will plant the cedars. So we don't have to wait for the cedars of Lebanon. We'll have the cedars of our own nation. We'll plant the good tree, the great tree, the best trees we don't need God. We don't need His protection. What's the worst they can do to us? We'll rebuild it better. We'll make it better than anything they could do. What you have is a people that are too proud a people that are too proud to admit that God is mightier than they are a people that are too proud to admit that their neighbors to the north are more powerful than they are, a people that are too proud to admit that their neighbors to the east are more powerful than they are, a people that are too proud to admit anything. What you have is a nation at this point that's living in irreality. They're living in fantasy. They're living in falsehood. They're living in untruth saying that our power is so great, our might is so great, our grandeur is so great. And you see the kind of connection there with the decline and fall of the Roman Empire. We got to see moments like that through your Roman history. If you ever studied Roman history, some of the fantastic ones, right? One of your emperors appointed his horse to the Senate might have been more intelligent than some politicians, perhaps, I'm not sure. Might have been a good choice, actually, if you think about it. Couldn't have voted to mess anything up. What you have is a people here living in this kind of falsehood fantasy land that believes they are mighty and powerful and strong, in essence, believing they can be whatever they want to be. And in verse 11 and 12, their pride is promised to be brought low. It comes to a crashing end. You want to rebuild? Well, okay, fine. Fair enough. The Lord's going to give you a cause. Instead, it won't be your two neighbors to the north, Razin, that invade. Instead, it will be greater problems than that. And why do you even do this, you foolish nation? You have enemies everywhere. And the only one you can trust to protect you is the Lord Himself. And the ending refrain is this kind of damning conclusion. The Lord's anger continues still. And why wouldn't it? They don't trust Him. They don't love Him. They don't honor Him. They're not obeying Him. They're not following His commands in any way. They're thumbing their nose at Him. They're ignoring Him. They're rejecting Him. A proud people with proud hearts. And these are one of those kind of moments in church history where it would be easy for us to say, well, I mean, if I were in their shoes and getting ready to be invaded and God told me to just, you know, trust him, I would have done that, obviously. But it comes time for us, actually, to kind of step into reality, isn't it? It's time for us to leave our own sort of fantasy land, to leave our own sort of irreality and step into the truth and admit, 
Friends, what's being laid out here is the heart of a proud person. And some of us in here are proud people, are we not? People who think that we can do it on our own. People that think we can solve all of our problems on our own. People that think we don't need anything from anyone at any time, in any way, at all. In fact, actually, we're so proud that we would never say this out loud. But so many of our interactions with the Lord, we approach them almost as as interactions with a peer. We just can't see with somebody that we respect and somebody that we know and that we love, but not someone that we are beneath. We've lost the appreciation of the gap in glory between where he is so high and where we are so low. We've lost that appreciation that we are a people of, as Isaiah's already said, unclean lips, unclean hearts, We have unclean minds. We are a people of uncleanness in general. And why on earth would we trust our own power or our own wisdom in any way? I think it's intriguing. The reoccurring theme we're going to see in this chapter is these people are cultivating the wrath of God Because for various reasons, the first one here we see is their pride, they refuse to ask him for help. I just think that's so intriguing. How many problems do we navigate on a weekly basis that are significant problems that we refuse to ask him for help? It's the heart of pride, friends. The heart of pride. Stanza 1 kind of begins to show what that pride looks like. Stanza 2 turns from the pride, in essence, to the application of that pride. The application of that pride is is a, a person who then gets convinced that they've got the answers. They're convinced that they have the right way to do it. They're convinced that they've done it correctly, and as a result, there's no need for repentance, There's no need to say, I'm sorry. There's no need to bow the knee, ultimately, because we've done it the correct way. Verse 12 ends with the terrible refrain of God's anger continues. Verse 13 begins to explain this. Look, these are the people who didn't turn to him. It's intriguing. One of the commentators notes at this point that you look at the book of Jeremiah, it's similar length, similar kind of content. It's filled with repentance. The word for repentance is everywhere through the book. It's used less than 11 times in the book of Isaiah because it's just not there. The people of God just don't repent. Their hearts are hard. They just don't listen. They don't break. They don't crumble before the Lord. The people did not turn to him, struck them, nor did they inquire of the Lord of hosts. And in fact, actually, as proof of this hard-heartedness, as proof of this pride, as proof of their lack of repentance, what you see in verses 14 and 15 are ultimately, into 16 even, that what you have is a nation that is so kind of 
in distress, the people who are supposed to be helping them have actually become the people that are hurting them. They're supposed to be led by elders, verse 15. They're supposed to be led by prophets, verse 15. Both of those are destroyed in verse 14. Verse 16, the people who are to guide them are actually leading them astray. And instead of listening to the Lord, they're listening to all of the wrong people. So instead of turning to God, they turn from Him and listen to all the wrong sources. And as a result, what's the consequence? Well, previous stanza, it was destruction. What happens here? Verse 17 is societal destruction. Therefore, the Lord does not rejoice now, not over a nation as a whole, but now the different people groups, specifically the weak and the wounded, those that would need extra compassion and tenderness, the judgment has come upon the society. And it's an intriguing kind of logical flow that you're watching take place, right? A, a people that are so hard-hearted, they listen only to themselves, which then works itself out with a heart that doesn't repent. And as the heart doesn't repent, it then fills its ears with those that already agree with it. It finds those that will scratch those itching ears, right? To further affirm and encourage in the disobedience. Well, the problem is that's not where it stops, right? It ends with the same refrain in verse 17. The Lord is still angry. His hand is stretched out still. And we go to verses 18 through 21. Awful verses. Awful verses. What happens here is you get to see kind of the pattern of what happens to a people that are proud, who then, because they're so proud, will not repent. Well, if they won't repent, what will they then be taken into? Well, (laughs) The path to the bottom. Said differently, learning the hard way. Said differently, the terrible, 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 awful, horrible punishment of having to see the consequences of what we do. Look at what happens in verse 18. It's dreadful. For wickedness burns like a fire. Their consequences, their behavior is part of the problem. It consumes briars and thorns. What's being described is it's like a forest fire. Their wickedness has begun it, and it's spreading through first the dead brush of the forest, and then once the dead brush of the forest is lit, then it spreads to the trees. It rolls upward like a column of smoke. It's this huge fire that's burning. And then verse 19, you find out really what that is. Through the wrath of the Lord of hosts, the land is scorched. Now, interestingly, you're watching two things happening at the same time. Their sins are having consequences. And the Lord's using that exact thing. Put differently, what's happened here is the Lord has actually given them exactly what they've asked for. That's their curse. That's their punishment. That's their dreadful, dreadful punishment. You wanted this. You wanted to do this type of thing. You wanted to live this kind of way. You wanted to act this kind of action out. Okay, fine. Here's the consequence. This is what that lifestyle brings. Feel free. Have a go. Go for it. Let's see how you feel in the morning. And the land is destroyed. 
In fact, actually, it's so destroyed that it ends up with one of the more gruesome illustrations you see in verse 20. A land that's so destroyed, that's so broken, that's so, in fact, kind of discombobulated. The destruction is so complete that there's starvation, and so that no one is able to fully even finish. They're not able to be satisfied in any way, and you have this kind of awful, awful, kind of grim portrait trying to find food on one side, trying to find food on the other side, even really devouring of the own body in an effort to be full. Obviously, it's not literal as it's explained in verse 21 that the, the various tribes are preying upon each other. The nation is, is consuming itself. They've been let to learn the hard way. They've been asking to hit rock bottom and the Lord's finally said, okay, you want to head that way? Go for it. Let's see how rock bottom feels. Let's see how you delight to be down there. But unfortunately, for all this, his anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still until we enter into chapter 10 hoping this is where it would maybe kind of get the kind of pick up at the end. Okay, three bad stanzas, maybe we'll get one good one. What do you think? Whoa, well, okay, nope. (laughs) First word, probably not. Eh, This isn't going to be the good stanza, is it? Woe to those who decree iniquitous decrees and the writers who keep writing oppression. Now we're seeing that what we're looking at is a nation that's so kind of uh, discombobulated, destroyed, and, and disheveled that people are actively preying upon one another. Even not just their enemies, not just the outsiders, but actively preying upon one another. I will make my livelihood at your expense. I will advance my family at your expense. I will advance my blessings and my goodness and my greatness at your expense. I will prey upon you. But you know what? I know it's okay because you're going to be doing the same thing to me. It's going to be whoever can kind of take advantage of the other one better. In fact, what this has produced is a nation where justice has been taken away from the needy. The poor have been robbed of their rights. Widows have their protection taken away from them. The fatherless become the prey of the nation. And what are you going to do on the day of judgment? Who are you going to look to for help? To whom will you flee for help and where will you leave all of the wealth that you've profited by taking from your friends or your neighbors? What are you going to do? There's nothing left for you to do but hide among the dead. That's a grim ending, isn't it? There's nothing left for you but to hide among the dead. What we have in these grim and awful verses is in so many ways the blessed contrast to the prior part of the chapter. Really what we've seen is what does the governance between the governance of Christ and the governance of man look? What are the differences? What do they look like? When we are left to our own ends, friends, when we are left to our own sinful hearts being in charge, when we are left to doing it our way, We have these four stanzas that work themselves out. Hearts of pride, 
that produce hearts that won't repent, that produce hearts that really yearn to learn the hard way, to go to the very rock bottom, which produce hearts that have nothing left to hope in. You realize, I mean, you might be saying, well, that that seems a bit melodramatic, really. No, that's really, I think in so many ways, the description of the average American's mindset right now. I mean, this is where we're at. I mean, this is where we're at as a nation. This is a description of where we're at as a nation. We got to watch that on the news this last week, did we not, in a PCA church, one of our sister denomination churches. Watching a nation that's been so full of itself, saying that we have all of the answers, that we know everything, that it's all how we're going to do it. We're in charge. We're the boss. We're the best. And because we're so committed to our pride, we just don't repent well. I was was thinking about it. I mean, are there words that our kind of cultural moment are less eager to say than I'm sorry? I mean, think about that. Like, honestly, is there a concept that we as a culture embrace less then I'm sorry. Do we do that? I mean, is that, how, is that how we roll? Do we learn the easy way? Do we listen with our ears and have tender hearts? Sensitive that we might have hurt others, that we might have sinned against the Lord? Or does it take so much effort so much effort to be taught. Realistically, I'd love to pretend like my heart and yours doesn't tend in that direction, doesn't trend in that direction. The problem is, is I know my own heart and pastored many of you long enough to know at least a glimpse of yours. Our natural tendency, one is Americans, two is South Carolinians, three is Christ Ridge, is to honestly be able to say, look, the Lord's been very kind to us and we've got it figured out. I know what I'm doing. I know what I'm doing. And I find that so intriguing is really that's the problem that the entire passage starts off with a person who says, I've got it under control. I know what I'm doing. Instead of those people that are like, yeah, I have no idea what I'm doing. Time to go back and look at the Bible, try to figure out what God says. I'm going to go listen to whatever he says and do whatever he says because he knows what he's doing. In fact, I'm going to be devoted in every way I possibly can to doing whatever he tells me to do, obeying him at all costs. And the intriguing thing is the contrast between this portion of the chapter and the first portion of the chapter. This portion of the chapter is marked by destruction after destruction after destruction after destruction, and the governance of Christ is marked by light and joy and peace and prosperity and wisdom and safety and hope and life. 
Friends, some of us honestly need to have a little bit of repentance in our hearts. We need to have a season, perhaps, where we spend a little bit of time thinking about that, examining the ways in which we've been proud, the ways in which we've said, no, I've got this, I'm, I'm all right, I got this. Instead of going to the Lord and pleading for mercy. I love, that's one of those great themes in the scriptures. Does the Lord scold his people for not having wisdom? It's interesting, as parents, we oftentimes will scold our children for not having wisdom. But James tells us the Lord doesn't scold us for not having wisdom. He actually just scolds us when we don't go to him to ask for it. When we don't go to him, when we don't run to him, when we don't flee to him, when we don't seek him. Perhaps that might be the challenge for you today. To go to him, to seek him, to find wisdom in him. Now, there might be unbelievers in the room. I don't know everybody here, don't know everybody's hearts. If you're not a Christian, the challenge for you is a bit different. For you, it's not an issue of, well, have you been walking with the Lord? Have you been listening to the Lord and things like that? But instead, it's, in fact, do you even know him at all? And you get to see the contrast in the text of his governance in the first eight verses, seven verses, and basically how you're running your life in the next 20 or so. And if you find yourself in that condition, friend, I would say, go to him. He's very, very warm in welcoming anyone. As you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord, he will forgive you of your sins and bring you into his kingdom and continue to sanctify, make you holy, make you better, make you live in a way that fits more and more with the ethics of his kingdom. And perhaps, maybe, you find yourself in one of those situations, third category of person that doesn't maybe perhaps relate to either of the first two applications. You don't find yourself needing a season of repentance. You don't find yourself, perhaps, uh, as a non-Christian instead, going, what do I do with a passage like this that's so hard? And if that's the case, I would say perhaps for you is maybe to add a sense of seriousness to your faith. It's so easy for us to kind of go about this life kind of flitting around like a butterfly, passing in and out of the sunlight, in and out of the shade, in and out of the church building, in and out of our homes, in and out of our jobs, and to never think about the weight of life. And one thing that very difficult passages like this do is they challenge us to contemplate for just a little bit how weighty life is with the judgment of God and the forgiveness of Christ. If you find yourself in this situation, pause and reflect today. Think about it. Contemplate. What exactly is God doing in our lives? And for all of us, men and women, boys and girls, young and old, everyone in between, our challenge as we think about this latter part of uh, chapter 9 into the first few verses of chapter 10 is to be thankful for the Lord Jesus. This is what he spares us from, destroying our own lives by getting the very things we want. One of the great words the Lord tells us is no. Be thankful for that and rejoice in him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, even these really hard passages. We thank you that while you do have so many passages in the scriptures that encourage us, that speak comfort to us, that speak delight to us, that there are these here that speak judgment.
remind us of the severity of sin, the, uh, the seriousness of it, and the weightiness of life. Please forgive us in Christ. He's our only hope. In Jesus, amen.